Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Hay Festival podcast. Creating the festival each year is a monumental team effort. From booking the artists and finding sponsors, to managing a box office and designing and building the site. Hundreds of people are involved in making it happen, and a vital component to this mix are our on-stage interviewers. Their task is to draw the very best out of each guest, to put them at their ease and enable them to relax and reveal the stories that the audience are aching to hear. Now that's not an easy thing to do when you can be faced with a complex novel, lecture or discussion that you need to open up and explore. Or a guest who might be nervous or initially reluctant to share their most intimate thoughts. So in this series we want to celebrate the Hey Interviewer. We've asked some of our regular interviewers and friends to choose their own personal Hey moments from our archive. These might be interviews they have done, that they have seen, or that they wish they'd done. Over the coming weeks, we'll hear from Francine Stock, Safras Mansour, Stephanie Merritt and Dylan Jones amongst others, and travel with them through our Hay archive. First up this week is Philippe Sams, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College London, and a specialist in international law. Philippe is also a prolific author and has written several books, including the Bailey Gifford Prize-winning East West Street, and most recently the Sunday Times bestseller The Rap Line, which you can see him talking to Stephen Fry about on Hay Player. Hello, I'm Philippe Sands, and I've been asked to reflect on some of the most interesting moments that I've had the privilege of coming across as an interviewer at the Hay Festival. I've been incredibly happy to be able to do these interviews since about 2007, 2008. Um, so nearly, nearly 15 years of interviews and I've done dozens and dozens and I've loved every single one. But a number really stick out. Um, going back in time, in 2008, I had the opportunity to interview President Jimmy Carter. I had just published a book on torture by the United States in relation to the so-called War on Terror, a memorandum written by Donald Rumsfeld. And I'd noticed before the interview with Jimmy Carter that he had confirmed that waterboarding was a form of torture. And I thought to myself, well, really interesting to see whether I can get him to say something about um, torture and in particular whether George W. Bush might be prosecuted or might face difficulties if he were to travel outside the country. Well, I um, carried on with the interview and I have to say he was extremely impressive and agile no surprises there and we got on to the torture issues and I got on to the question of crimes and he was marvellous he worked out well ahead of where I was going where I was going and he brought the audience on board and at the critical moment he said of President George W. Bush's future, I wish him a long and happy retirement in the United States. In the United States, I said, 
thinking about the Pinochet precedent. And he just laughed. He was a wonderful interviewee. Quote I took from one of your books Uh-oh. was that human human rights. No, it's it's a, it's a happy quote. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> human rights, I think you've said, is the foundation of our nation's foreign policy. And you, yes, it is. Uh, I listened with interest to Alan Rusbridge's uh, list of uh, significant achievements. To my mind, one of the very great achievements of your presidency was to put human rights on the international agenda in a way no other president uh, had done, building on various issues. In in relation to Iran in the late 1970s, there was a dichotomy there, wasn't there? Because you had a strong commitment to human rights, but you engaged in the real politique of dealing with the Shah, whose domestic human rights record was less than ideal. Yes. Well, when I made my inaugural speech as uh, president, I pointed out that uh, human rights would be the foundation of our foreign policy and that every ambassador on earth would be my personal human rights representative and that every American embassy on earth would be a haven for people who were persecuted by their own government. And when the Shah demonstrated that I thought that he had lost the support of many of his people and separated himself even from his closest advisors who had formally cautioned him, and he let his uh, secret police, SABAK, S-A-B-A-K, attack what I consider to be innocent demonstrators, young, young people. I chastised him very severely uh, in my back office of the, near the Oval Office of the White House and told him that I thought this was a serious mistake, that he should let his people express their views against him. But he thought that I was mistaken. He chastised me and said that that these were just a tiny portion, I think he said less than 1%, who were and then, then communists, which has the same connotation now as terrorists do, and that if I didn't address those kind of threats in my country in the same way with all the European countries, we were going to be in bad trouble. So I think that that was an indication quite early that the Shah had lost touch with his own people and was using abusive violations of human rights to maintain himself in power. And then when he was overthrown by the, by the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's supporters, then that was, a, I think, a, a very serious blow to the uh, beliefs, not only of America, but of every, I think, every secret service or every intelligence service in the world. You, you, you touched on one aspect of that that I'm interested in. You, you kept the conversations private. You chastised him privately. You took a visit, I think, uh, before he fell, obviously, to uh, Iran, and I know from some recent writings and earlier writings that a number of people in Iran were deeply disappointed that you chose not to publicly criticize his human rights record on the occasion of that visit to Iran. Do you regret that with the benefit of hindsight? If I had known that the show was going to be overthrown, which nobody did, uh, it may have been to my political advantage to align myself with the future revolutionaries who might sometime in the future take over Iran and depose the Shah, but I didn't have any opportunity to do that. So I don't think it's possible for me to have predicted that the Shah was going to fall. You have to remember that the Shah had been in power then during the terms uh, of seven, six presidents before I was uh, inaugurated. And certainly uh, all of us would like to have used our influence beneficially to prevent any human rights abuse or persecution of Iranian people by the Shah, which then resulted maybe 
in an exacerbated way in, this, in his being overthrown. But I, I don't think I, it's even reasonable to suggest that I or any other leader who knew Iran better than I did could have anticipated that. Were there other aspects you might have anticipated, and again, with the benefit of hindsight, done differently? I, I'm thinking, for example, the invitation to the Shah to spend time in the United States after he was deposed, which seems to have galvanized very yeah. strong feelings within Iran. Well, might, I, might that have been handled differently? That became the most uh, unpleasant crisis of my life. When the Shah was deposed, I did not want him to come to the United States. I wanted him to stay in another country, but to be safe and, and to live the rest of his life in retirement. So I made arrangements for him to go to Egypt because I had a good friend in Anbar Sadat. He took him into Egypt. Uh, before too many weeks went by, there was a presumption that the Shah was too close to Iran, that he might even launch an attack from Egypt. So then I made arrangements for the Shah to come to a Caribbean country. He claimed to me after a few weeks that he was cheated and that he was being charged too much and he wanted to leave. So I, then I made the arrangements for him to come to Contradora Island in the, on the Pacific coast of, uh, of Panama. And he went there. And he stayed there despite his importunities to come to America uh, from Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and, and many other people. And I resisted because I didn't think it was the proper thing to do. Finally, the Shah reached a point of terminal cancer. All of his doctors in Panama said that he was going to die. And they asked if he could come to a hospital in New York for treatment. And I said, I would consider that. So I contacted the incumbent president and prime minister of Iran. And I said, I want to let the Shah come to New York, to my country, to be treated. But I would like for you to guarantee me the safety of American people there. We had about over 10,000 Americans working in Iran. And they came back and gave me that assurance, provided the Shah would agree not to make any political statements condemning the incumbent regime while he was in New York. And he agreed to that. So he came to New York. He never opened his mouth in any political statement. And then the hostages were taken by some militant young people. Uh, the Ayatollah's son endorsed their action. But when the Ayatollah approved what they had done, the incumbent president and the prime minister resigned in protest and left Iran because the Ayatollah violated their promise to me. So that was a, a quick, maybe not quick enough, summary of what happened. Because there's, there's an interesting tension yeah. that I can see that the draw towards the it was, humanitarian... It was more than interesting at the time, I can assure you of that. <laughs> Go ahead. Go but ahead. a tension between your, your, your personal, in a sense, humanitarian instinct yes. on the one hand, and on the other hand, I just noticed in your writings there's a theme that runs all the way through, and this is, you have, you're very strongly committed to issues of accountability and individual responsibility. Yes. That's a difficult issue, isn't it? In well, it is. And you have to have a sound enough judgment if you're making a decision about whether another person is fulfilling their responsibilities to try to understand the circumstances in which that other person is exercising leadership. Does that person have enough support from his public or her public to take a bold step? Or are they very fragile in their political status? For instance, right now, I'm not trying to in inject 
modern day things into it, but I, I would think that the general consensus now is that the leader of the Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas, does not have adequate support among the Palestinian people to take bold action, since over half the Palestinians are probably not involved in the present government since Hamas is left. And I would guess that in Israel, that the present prime minister, uh, who inherited the, the position, as you know, from Ariel Sharon, does not have adequate, bold, competent, firm leadership to take action that might be controversial among his own constituency. Uh, if, for instance, the leaders of Shah's party, a religious party, would withdraw their support from the prime minister, his government would fall. And he's now being investigated, which is well known in the news media, for possible taking of uh, improper payments. So I, I would say in that case, both leaders are too weak for anyone outside to expect them to take really bold and courageous action of a political nature. So I think you have to make a judgment in each case. What, what's the general principle guiding the judgment when it comes to leaders or former leaders who've committed crimes? I remember in one of your books you described meetings with then-President Milosevic, and I think it was Senator Leahy of Vermont, impressed upon you the need to not make any promises to Mr. Milosevic yeah. in relation to immunity. When in, Which I didn't. Yeah, go ahead. When an individual president has engaged in a crime of that kind, what's the balance between immunity and realpolitik? Well, as you probably know, until quite recently, that is, in, in my children's life, it has been an international presumption that a former leader of a nation, a king or a president or a prime minister, would not be put on trial in a different country for crimes that, that he or she had committed. And I think the first deviation from that was with uh, the former leader of, uh, of Chile. Um, and, and he was actually, I think, arrested in, in Great Britain Pinochet. And, and there was a, a, a law in Spain that outlawed terror, torture, and Great Britain turned him over to Spain for trial, and he was eventually trialed. And I think now that has established a, a, a tenuous, not yet fully accepted, international legal principle that the leader of a nation, if he's guilty of torture or of international crimes, can later be tried in another country or indicted in another country and brought, and brought to trial. So I think that's a new development that, that has only come recently, and I don't think it's yet been established. A, 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 a for, you have to be a former president and you then lose immunity. Is it a, is it a decent principle in your view? <laughs> if you'll tell me what your next question is, I'll answer <laughs> You, you gave an interview. <laughs> you gave an interview last October to Wolf Blitzer of CNN, and you surprised a number of people in the United States on what you said in respect of the United States' move towards torture. You yes. said, "I think I know it's happening." Yes. We've subsequently learned that it was authorised at the very top. That's true. What's your reaction to that? Of embarrassment and uh, horror and despair and hope that the next president of the United States, whether it's uh, 
Republican or Democratic, will permanently and on a global basis vow that our country will never again torture a prisoner and that we will... And that we will in the future comply with the terms of the international agreements on multiple subjects in which the United States has been actively involved in the preparation of the agreement. Uh, this is something that we have seen happen in our country in recent uh, months or years, recent years, that's un that are unprecedented in our history. And in my opinion, it violates the basic principles that have made our nation a great one in the, in the past. That, that's the future, but what about the past? I mean, we're all... Uh, I mean, the United States has led the world yes, I know. in putting in place a global rule of law such as it is, human rights, the torture convention. We've got a president who has authorized torture. Yes. Torture is a crime. How does the United States balance those issues? I think the United States would uh, accept the fact that that president has been replaced and would respect the, his, that president's right to live a, a productive and peaceful life in our country. In our country? What if he said I'm not getting back to your previous question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, there have been warnings of other leaders in the past. For instance, uh, there were warnings given, I understand, to former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger that if he visited some countries because of what happened in the bombing uh, of, uh, in, during the Vietnam War, that, that he might be accused of a crime. So I think there's been some caution there. Uh, and there have been some allegations that even George Bush Sr. might be threatened with some legal action in some other countries because of the uh, first Iraq war. But I, but I really uh, prefer not to speculate on what might happen in the future about my current president. I've known Keir Starmer for many years. We're both barristers. We've worked together on cases. We did a case even on genocide together at the International Court of Justice for Croatia against Serbia a few years ago. So we've had a, um, a very good chance to get to know each other. And he came to Hay for the first time in 2012. He came back actually last year in 2019. When he came in 2012, he was the Director of Public Prosecutions and I thought it would be interesting to invite him as part of a way of getting to understand how a Director of Public Prosecutions takes decisions. Of course, at that point, he was not a politician and I don't think he had any desire to become a politician or at least he certainly didn't articulate it. Um, he was a progressive person. I knew he was a supporter of Labour. Um, but he only became a member of Parliament three or four years later. And, of course, it's only this year that he's become leader of the Labour Party. So looking back on some of the things he talked about is completely fascinating. But he told one story that I especially loved. He has a very good sense of humour. Uh, sometimes, perhaps, that doesn't come across completely, but he's warm and very quick and very funny, and he told a story about himself, about the time when, as Director of Public Prosecutions, a file crossed his desk, a story about a man who was impersonating Keir Starmer, and he told it with immaculate 
timing. And he too managed to get the audience completely in his hands. They were entranced as he described the information reaching his home. A property company called up and wanted him to close a deal about a property he knew nothing about. A fine art gallery got in touch about the painting he'd expressed interest in. And this was a story that I think showed to me that Keir was going to become a major, major player. His timing, his warmth, his intelligence, his generosity of spirit. The audience absolutely loved that moment. We've stayed very closely in touch. From time to time, I work with him on some of the things he has on his in-tray. And I really do wish him every success. I think he would make a most fantastic Prime Minister in years to come. Uh, and then I moved into um, assisted suicide because the House of Lords, then our highest court, uh, ruled that I should produce some guidelines on assisted suicide. Uh, and I did so. And that's been very high profile because it's a keenly felt subject. Uh, we then had MPs' expenses. But just before we get, say a little bit more, I was going to come to that later, but since you've mentioned it, tell us a little bit more. It lands in your lap. You're invited to direct guidelines. Explain to us the process in which the Director of Public Prosecutions then articulates a set of guidelines on an issue on which reasonable people have a range of different views. Well, it, start, I, it started for me in a real case, and I think that helped. It was a case of Daniel James. Um, he was um, a young man in his early 20s, a very, very keen and very good rugby player. And, and a scrum collapsed uh, on him, and um, he was paralysed uh, from the neck down um, and uh, really couldn't do anything for himself, could not eat, could not speak, uh, could speak, couldn't uh, 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 eat um, uh, or bathe himself or toilet himself. Um, and he fell into increasingly deep depression. Um, he absolutely uh, hated his existence, um, but he was not terminally ill. So the doctors would say to him confidently, uh, you're going to be in this condition. Uh, it's never going to improve. And you're probably going to live until you're 70. And he could not face that. Um, he tried um, to make the best of it. And his mother worked with him, as you'd expect, in that. And she went through a lot of stuff saying, let's do one thing every day that you want to do. Um, and let's you know, live for one day at a time. But he was slipping and slipping and slipping. And he just wanted to commit suicide. He tried a couple of times. Um, and she did everything she could to prevent that. Um, and in the end, he said to her, I've only got two options. Either I starve myself to death here, um, or I go to Dignitas. Um, and I want to do one or the other. Will you come with me if I go? Um, and she said, no, I don't want you to do it. But eventually, um, as you can imagine, uh, she gave in and he said, I'm going to go and I don't want to die on my own, I don't want to die alone. She went um, and uh, in Dignitas, it's two or three days you're there, but it's 20 minutes from um, taking the fatal dose until you die. Um, and she walked through that in an interview. She came back. She was arrested for assisted suicide and I read through the details of that case, read through her interview. And um, one of the police officers put it to her in interview. 
uh, that when she was in the room with him after he'd taken the fatal dose, he said to her, well, madam, don't you realise you're committing an offence? And she just, like this, and just said, you just don't get it, do you? This was my son. And the idea, frankly, of putting that mother on trial for assisted suicide um, appeared to me the wrong exercise of any discretion. And one could see um, how you might go about um, cases. And the, the, the broad divide that we've now got in our guidelines is between um, cases where um, somebody has um, formed a, a, a clear intent to commit suicide and others assist out of compassion uh, uh, in that, uh, on the one side, which would tend against prosecution, uh, and on the other side, um, cases where someone hasn't got a clear, uh, settled wish to commit suicide, or there's some sort of pressure or seeking of gain from the individual. And that's worked really well in practice. We've had quite a number of cases since then. Um, but they're very difficult cases, and there are very, very strong views on either side. When we decided um, uh, to try to sketch out our guidelines, we went out uh, for a public consultation um, and asked for views of everyone, because I was very mindful of the fact that trying to decide where the public interest lies in such a sensitive area is a very tricky business. So we went out to a very extensive public uh, uh, consultation and we got over 5,000 responses, and that's if you um, count the Catholic Church as one respondee, which might be a little ungenerous. Um, there, was, there was a huge amount, but it was very interesting that whatever end, whatever view people took, in the end, um, those that were compassionately helping others um, were viewed by most as a category that um, I don't think they wanted to see prosecuted. I mean, th these are issues that go to the heart of any society um, and define a society. Another issue I know that you've had to deal with on occasion is the situation of self-defence, use of yeah. violence and self-defence, which also raises fundamental questions. Someone breaks into your house, they seem to be carrying a knife or an arm or some other thing, what is a reasonable person entitled to do? Again, reasonable people will disagree about that. Is this guidelines approach the way forward on a range of issues, including those kinds of issues? Or? Well, on that issue, I don't actually think we need guidelines. I'm not against guidelines if they help. But the law on self-defence is, um, is very straightforward and I, I think um, works very well in practice. Anybody confronted with a situation when another person breaks into a ha their house um, is entitled to use such force as they think is reasonable, judged by the circumstances as they believe them to be. And I think that's actually a very good workable test. I don't think anybody would shy away from the fact that having somebody else break into your house, particularly if they're armed, um, is a terrifying experience, um, and uh, one in which it's very hard to know how you'd personally uh, react, uh, and one in which you can't expect people to react completely and utterly rationally. Um, but that test works well. Was the force they used in repelling it, even if it amounts to uh, a homicide, even if the individual is killed, was it reasonable? in light of the circumstances as they genuinely thought them to be. So if they genuinely thought the individual had a knife or a gun, even if it turns out that person didn't have a knife or a gun, they're to be judged on the basis that they did have a knife or a gun. Um, and um, it's actually a simple test. 
it works well in practice. I think it's a shame that it's pulled in lots of different directions by individuals trying to make a point, because the test actually is a perfectly workable one. We've talked about some pretty serious issues in the last half hour. You've also had some rather amusing and surprising episodes since you were appointed. Well, there's one I just was telling Philippe about earlier that was a complete surprise. I was about um, nine or 12 months into office um, when um, I found out that there was somebody out there who was impersonating me <laughs> as DPP, as Keir Starmer. Um, and um, I first knew about this when um, a very exclusive art gallery phoned my private office on a Monday morning um, to continue with the negotiations over the painting um, that I'd been um, apparently buying over the course of the um, weekend. Um, and that was followed very quickly with um, a team who were clean, uh, wanted to close the deal on a, on a luxurious mansion in Berkshire, <laughs> three or four million pounds. Um, so that, okay, I, I, I obviously said, no, this isn't me. Although I have to say, my, my wife said, well, we, should we just let the mansion one go through <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and see, see how it comes out. But uh, the other aspect and how this individual got caught was uh, he um, apparently told a number of women that um, he was the DPP, he was Keir Starmer, he had three very expensive cars, was very important and influential, and um, that, surprisingly enough, um, worked for them. <laughs> and uh, so he had these affairs both at the same time with these two women. And the way he was caught out was one of the women became more and more suspicious and she gave evidence in court. Um, but um, first she said, I got a bit suspicious that although he had these three cars, and they're all worth over a million pounds and he had a driver apparently and all the rest of it, uh, he always wanted a lift in my Volkswagen um, <laughs> whenever we went out. And the other thing, and she was cross-examined about this, uh, she was asked, she said, the other thing that made me um, suspicious was that uh, one night when he was staying in my flat, um, we had a terrible row. And the next morning, I saw that he had daubed bitch on my wall in the garden. And I thought, that doesn't seem very much like something a DPP <laughs> would do. <laughs> But she, she, she apparently then Googled me um, and was asked in cross-examination, you know, when the picture came up, um, uh, didn't you think, well, this is the wrong man? And she said, well, I thought he might be having an off day. <laughs> <laughs> he was eventually... Um, uh, in prison. He'd been stealing various things along the way, but uh, he was trying... Uh, last bit on this, if I may. When I he was going for hours with this one. They're eating out of your hands. Eventually, of course, he was arrested, and the decision came in, should he be prosecuted? So, <laughs> as a, a, a proper DPP, I said, well, obviously, this must be ring-fenced. I must have absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't want to know anything about the file. I don't want to know who's taking the decision. That's it. I've only got three questions. Uh, is he pleading not guilty? Is his defence that he is Keir Starmer? <laughs> And where, where do I stand if he gets acquitted? <laughs> <laughs> Happily for me, 
he's doing to I could just see myself being sort of carted off in handcuffs as they, as they installed him in my room. <laughs> in 2013, I had the great happiness of interviewing an old friend of mine, Amanda Goldsworthy. We'd actually been at university together back in 1979 onwards. Can you believe it? And Amanda, who was doing modern languages at university, went on to become one of the world's great interpreters, which she is. She interpreted for President Sarkozy, Mitterrand and Chirac. And privately, she would sometimes share with me some of the most extraordinary stories. Um, but what I really loved were the funny moments. And she described in particular moments where, for example, an interpreter has to tell a joke and the incredible difficulties you face in translating the example she gave us at Hay, uh, a Japanese individual. And she would describe how on occasion, as she was doing an interpretation, she would encourage uh, the audience to laugh at a particular moment where the joke was untranslatable, as she says, Translation, a joke from Japanese into Norwegian is not easy. What is funny for a Norwegian will not necessarily be funny for a Japanese. She talked about anecdotes and metaphors and proverbs and sayings and all the difficulties she ever faced. I've deeply admired interpreters as I work with them so much in my own work before international courts and tribunals. Not only are they remarkable in interpreting simultaneously as you speak, their incredible brains are translating you into another language. But also imagine for a moment what it is to be an interpreter who's interpreting a trial about mass murder and genocide and other horrors and the kinds of traumas as an interpreter you go through, living through that experience. Interpreters are often the unsung heroes and Amanda Galsworthy is one of the great interpreters. What a privilege to speak with her at the Hay Festival. What an incredible happiness. Just after the, uh, the Springboks had, just, had, uh, had won the, the World Rugby Championships, and the South Africans were very, very proud of this. And you sort of understand how this came about, but it, it was actually quite, quite difficult because the president stood up and made this speech um, congratulating uh, the All Blacks on, on their win. Now, the, 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 I mean, yes, we were in South Africa, and for obvious reasons he said, the All Blacks. But the problem though, is that I was not talking at the same time as him, so I, I was taking notes. I realized this, and there was a kind of horrible silence in the room, as a lot of other people had realized this as well. And there I had to correct, I didn't correct him, but I congratulated the South Africans on the Springboks winning the championship. But it was, I don't even know that he realized it, but the French afterwards came up to me and said, thank heavens, thank you so much for doing that. But obviously it was in, the, in my line of business. But there are, there are many, I mean, again, it's, it's a snap decision as to whether it's a slip of the tongue of the sword. I, described, of the sort you described, there you, you can see it coming. Now, I've never been in a situation where, as some of my colleagues, American colleagues have, um, Reagan or Bush got the wrong country. 
uh, and said I'd lift my razor toes to whatever of the Argenti Argentina when he was in Brazil or whatever it was. I've never had to do that. Uh, what I would do is probably what I did with the Springboks, but that, that's not a very comfortable position to be what in. If, what if you're interpreting for someone and the, I mean, you're interpreting in both directions. Mm. So your president speaks, you're then... Well, it depends. The throwback to the Cold War is that with certain heads of state, such as the American, obviously the Russian, but that's not my department, there will be another interpreter. The reason why um, is that during the Cold War, we were, the interpreters were actually listening and checking on one another. Now, that's no longer the case, but by and large, Obama will always have his interpreter and... So French president meets American president, the American president will have his own interpreter who is interpreting what the French president is saying in French no, into English. I changed that rule. It used to be that. But I changed it because I felt that I was in, the, in a better position to know what was in Chirac or Sarkozy's mind and express it to the American so than the other way around. So you're doing a two-way interpretation, from um, English into French for the French president and from French into, into English for I would American. be his voice in English. So why would the US president accept such a thing in the sense that why should the American president trust you? Well, he had his own interpreter, but we, he, know, he knew me sufficiently well to know that I would uh, well, to rely on me. I mean, and, and, uh, and they, they were, you get to know these people quite well. I mean, I do remember one very amusing moment. <coughs> I was very grateful to Bush, actually, for his reaction. Um, Sarkozy was a very, very forceful speaker and a very uh, spontaneous one. He didn't do uh, double speak. Above all, didn't do diplomatic language. Um, which sometimes made it a little difficult for me. And I remember one time when he met with Bush right at the beginning of his term, when he was talking about something he was very hot under the collar about. I can't remember what, but he, he, he used a very um, expressive uh, gesture uh, and a very... Um, as in, yes, as in, and this is, this is what I have said to him. <laughs> and... Uh, I was a split second behind. I thought, oh, God, what do I do? And Bush was bang opposite me, and he just held up his hand. He said, I think we got that bit. Thank you. <laughs> I just said, thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> and, and, and what happens when you find yourself in a situation and you are listening very attentively to the person who is communicating to your president speaking in English, and the person uses a form of words that you don't understand, refers to a country or a people or a situation that you are not quite able to understand what is being said because the person is unable to communicate clearly. Or uses perhaps a different way of saying things. I agree. That you pray. Um, I remember particularly, you really pray. The so most hard. embarrassing it, it, a, a really bad moment where, you know, you think, okay, God exists. He's right here right now. Um, it was a meeting um, between two presidents and uh, it was with reference to the Middle East. And at one point, one of them said, um, and uh, what, does, um, what does Gada think about this? I'm like, hmm, fine. What, so you, don't, you obviously can't say to a president, what exactly do you mean? 
um, what was that word again? You don't ask them to repeat. You didn't quite hear the word, or you didn't understand what the word was. Well, I didn't understand what the word gadda was, actually. Gadda was the word. Gadda was the word. What, you know, was the the, what does gadda think about this? Mm. So I sort of said in French, so what does um, our friend think about this? And I'm thinking, maybe who's gadda? This will become clear in the course of the conversation. The problem is it went on and on and on. And finally, and I was thinking, you have this kind of parallel track of thought where you're, you're sifting it through your mental computer, thinking, what are the options? What, what is the closest thing I know that sounds like gadda? And finally, what happened was um, the sentence came along, and in, I just don't agree with the gadderese, and I don't know how, how I managed to understand that actually what was being refer, referred to was Qatar and the Qataris. Um, but at that last split second, it came through, and I was able to say, le Qatar et les Qataris, which, which saved the day. But there are other moments. I mean, I was thinking of, uh, of, of what you're making me think about um, difficult or, or situations where there can be misunderstandings. And I think one of the things that is most um, difficult for, if you want to be an interpreter and to, is, is both to be, as I've always said, to be and not to be. You have to be there, desperately there, uh, and, and tuned into everything. But at the same time, you have to be self-effacing. You can't, you can't replace the speaker. You're, not, you're in their mind, but you're not speaking for them or in lieu of them. And I remember one, one episode years back. I was in Korea. And I was working for an international organization called the Interparliamentary Union. And they always have a thematic debate, and they tend to choose pretty broad issues like poverty and peace and stuff like that. Anyway, that, that particular instance, they'd chosen peace in the Middle East. And the poor man who was supposed to chair this meeting was a Belgian, and he was very, very, very upset about it because he knew there was going to be a lot of tension and there were, there were all the pro-Arabs on the one side and all the pro-Israelis on the other, and they were at each other's throats. So I said to him, don't worry, Monsieur le Président, it will be OK. I've done many of these. It's going to be fine. So, so I'm counting on you. And so he gave the floor to the first speaker, who waxed very lyrical. He was an Israeli, I think, about security issues, Israel, etc. And I interpreted it into whatever language it was, French into English or the other way around. And then the next speaker asked to take the floor. And he was, said the exact opposite. And he was very, very hot under the collar about it, and so was I, as I had to do his speech again into another language. And then suddenly, at the back of the room, we see a gentleman far, far at the back of the room who did this, which means point of order. So that means everything has to grind to a halt, and he has to be given the floor to say something forceful. So the chairman looked at me. He was gray with anxiety, and I said, don't worry. And this little man piped up, and he said, um, Mr. Chairman, um, I have to intervene because these are really important issues. These, these are really, you can't not have an opinion. You, you, you have to take a moral stand. We all of us have a moral stand on these issues. And yet the lady over there pointing at me, she agrees always with the last speaker. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, <laughs> what happened was everybody laughed because he hadn't realized I was the interpreter. He, he was then so embarrassed he left the room. But, but of course, it created a tremendously good atmosphere, and there was no more fighting among, amongst them, and they, they all got on fine. 
it's, it's, it is, it's a remarkable position because you're there, but you're not there. You're, you're, you're invisible, but you're very present. And you also have to become very culturally attuned and uh, culturally sensitive. I, I mean, in, in my world of international law, where we're doing great cases, often the ice is broken by the cracking of a joke. But the cracking of a joke almost never works when it is interpreted into another language. It's very difficult. That, that must happen from time to time. That, that, is, that is our nightmare. I mean, jokes, um, <clears throat> proverbs, sayings, metaphors. Uh, metaphors, a nightmare. Jokes, probably the worst of the lot. Um, because obviously the point of a joke is to make the other person laugh. So uh, if that's not achieved, then it has seriously fallen flat. And I mean, in our profession, this is something we, we've, we've thought about long and hard. Um, because obviously what makes the Japanese laugh just doesn't make uh, the Norwegians laugh. It just doesn't work, especially when it's translated, dragged through two languages and two cultures. I mean, I have one well-known story amongst interpreters, and, which we even teach at the, at, at the school, because I taught for 20 years. We say, when, when you've tried everything, when you're so desperate that you don't know what to do, try this. Um, which, which in fact worked. It's one instance where a uh, Japanese was telling a story, um, and uh, a funny story, as it turned out. It wasn't funny, but it was supposed to be funny. <laughs> the interpreter got so uptight about it that finally he said into, or she said, actually it was a woman, into the mic to her French audience, look, this, the Japanese speaker is telling a joke. It's not funny, but please laugh. It'll give him so much pleasure. <laughs> and of course they all did, so he was really very happy. But then, you can only do that so many times. The, I know that my, my particular nightmare is, is metaphors and, and proverbs. And, and something I have taught my students and told them never, ever to forget is this particular instance of um, a speaker who used um, a, uh, a metaphor, well, a well-known saying, which is, there's no smoke without fire, which, of course, works in French. But the, the, and when you find the equivalent, in the other language, you feel so proud of yourself. You think, oh, I'm such a good linguist. I'm so clever. Except, mm, except. And in Spanish, there's no smoke without fire, is, if you translate it literally, when you hear water, the river is never far. <laughs> well, that's fine. Except that the speaker went on to spin the metaphor further. And therefore, the whole, his whole speech was about the fact that the fire starts in the roof and gradually <laughs> eats its way down the house. And the interpreter was like, Oh, um, but still didn't see the danger coming, and so the flood was rising, and the fire the was fine, and so and then and then then came the punchline, the speaker's punchline, which was, but do not worry, ladies and gentlemen, with fire there's always a solution. You put it out with water. Well, what do you do with your flood that's now reached? The... So since then, never again. The, the way you do it is, in fact, if you can find the clever. Uh, way to say it in, in the local language, then fine, do so. But spell it out. Thanks for joining us. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can find over 8,000 more recordings of Hay Festival events over on the Hay Player on our website. Next week, our guest is broadcaster and editor Georgina Godwin. <laughs>